turn our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah 2. We'll read the entire chapter and we take the entire chapter also as our text for the sermon this afternoon. Zechariah was given seven visions in the night, and they're typically called the night visions. And we have here the third of those night visions, and each of those visions depicted Christ in some form as the priest king of his church and of his people, and depicted Christ as the one who would establish his temple and would be the builder of that temple and of God's covenant. Here the third of those visions focuses especially on God's promise to build his Zion to protect her and to make her his place of his covenant. And so on the occasion of a new year and the installation of office bearers, we pay careful attention to the promises that God gives. Beautiful promises here set forth in this vision. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked. And behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And he said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth, and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwelleth with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and there shall and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and he shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. You read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. The passage emphasizes by inspiration of the Spirit that Jehovah God will dwell with his people as their God. And this prophecy is very similar to a number of different prophecies that we find throughout the Bible. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27. And Ezekiel, chapters 40 and 42, all mention the idea of a measuring line. The message of those visions is similar to that of the vision that we have here. Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation all talk about the church as the place where God keeps covenant with his people. And God's plan then to build that church and to make that church beautiful. God protects her. 
And God preserves her over against all of the enemies that are about. In the first vision, God had spoken of, in chapter 1, of stretching a line on Jerusalem. And now that takes place here in chapter 2, in this third vision. As we begin a new year, as new men are installed as office bearers, it's good for us to understand and be reminded of the glorious place that God has given to his church. As an earthly institution, the church is vulnerable. She's vulnerable to schism. She's vulnerable to false teachings, departure from the truth. The membership of the church of Jesus Christ is sinful and characterized by sinners. Office bearers are mere men and confess themselves to be unworthy often for the task that's required of them. And then a congregation finds itself vacant without a pastor so that we feel ourselves very vulnerable in the midst of this world. Jehovah preserves to himself churches faithful to his word. And the emphasis of this passage is that there is no institution that is more safe, more secure than Christ's church and his saints. Often we can look at and we can with admiration, speak of businesses that have been around for a long time, businesses perhaps that have put in 100 years, 150 years, banks and others. God says, look at my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. Nations and people rise up in opposition, but I will preserve her and I will keep her. Banks fail. Kingdoms fail. Companies go bankrupt. But Christ's church is sure and is secure. And this vision sets forth then the glorious truth that the church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. And we lay hold on that truth by faith. As we join ourselves to local manifestations of that glorious church, and we pray for the grace and we pray for the strength to glorify God in what we do. We take our theme this afternoon from verse 8. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. We take our theme, the apple of God's eye, noting the assurance, the appearance, and the assignment. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. We read in verse 4. A man is sent to measure Jerusalem, and he goes out with this measuring line in his hand. Now again, there are multiple references in the Bible to this concept of measuring line. And whenever this is done, the intent is to demonstrate the glorious extent and the prosperity of that which is being measured. At least three things we can note in connection in this passage here. First of all, the purpose is to demonstrate God's care in building a place for himself, and building a people for himself. God will be their God, and God will make them his people, and he will live among them and dwell among them. And again, this is a common theme. We find it in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 6. We find it in Zechariah 2, verse 5 here. And we find it in Revelation 21, verse 3. The visions of Ezekiel stand out in this sense. 
that Ezekiel reveals the glory of God coming into the house of God by way of the rising of the sun. And the picture there is the son of righteousness through whom God lives among his people. That son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, being the one that brings glory to the church. First of all then, God building his church and God building himself a people. Secondly, it also shows God protecting and preserving that people. And verse 5 demonstrates that when it says that God promises to be a wall of fire around about and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ezekiel again expresses something similar in chapter 44, verse 9, that promise of protection. And then John in Revelation 21, 27 there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. This measuring is the idea of safety. It's the idea of security of God's people, that that which is measured now comes under the security and the care of Jehovah God. What is not measured is abandoned, and it is tread underfoot of the Gentiles. But then finally, this measuring is done especially according to verses 4, 6, and 11 to set forth the glory of God's covenant in gathering his church out of the ends of the earth. This is a temple that will be built that is far greater than anything that previously Israel had known, far greater than the temple of Solomon, far greater than the temple of Zerubbabel or of Herod. Because this is a temple whose fulfillment and whose building lie beyond Jerusalem and beyond the Jews. This is a temple, ultimately, that cannot be measured. And that's the irony of the passage. It's a temple that is gathered as the body of Jesus Christ, the elect, from all of the ends of the earth, out of every tribe and nation. Until that glorious church reaches her full glory, in heaven, where she no longer needs to be measured. And so God sends this man to measure when Jerusalem has not even been rebuilt. Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple has not been rebuilt yet. The walls are broken down. This shows the purpose. It shows the plan of God. I will bring it to pass. This is my promise regarding my church. So that the measuring here is pointing to Christ building his church. Building his church in such a way that that church is safe, that church is preserved, and that church is gathered out of all the world. The fulfillment of that we know coming then in terms of the wonder of God's sovereign decree of election, Christ's perfect obedience and sacrifice on Calvary, and then his pouring out of his spirit on Pentecost by which he dwells in his church. In that connection, the church is identified in verse 8 as the apple of God's eye. What a beautiful designation. Our eyes are sensitive, and we guard our eyes lest something would strike us in the eye and would blind us or take away our sight. God uses the reference here to the eye to describe something that's precious, something that's valuable to himself. A speck of dust in our eye can create tremendous pain and what was happening here in this history, God said, is the wicked were casting dirt 
upon his people. And by casting dirt upon his people, they were casting dirt into the eye of Jehovah God because his church is his eye. And so God now is moved with anger against them. And with a wave of his hand, according to verse 9, he will send them away. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. God is saying, you touch the church, you touch my eye. You touch that which is precious to me. And therefore, I will respond with judgment. What about the nations then that are seeking to destroy the church? the wicked nations that are standing over against God and against his people. Jesus not only says that he's going to build that church, but he says the gates of hell will not prevail against them, against her. Matthew 16, verse 18. The church is attacked, even as the Jews were being attacked back in Jerusalem. And the mighty power of the devil itself is leashed against the saints of God. The devil storms out of hell in order to bring about the destruction of his church, of God's church. And we see that throughout the whole of history. The devil standing ready to devour the Christ child, but God not allowing that to occur. God preserving Christ in the Old Testament through the line of David, but then once Christ was born, similarly, God not allowing the devil to bring about his destruction until finally Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice on Calvary. But the devil was there, and he was trying eagerly as the dragon to devour the Christ child. Throughout history, there's been that perpetual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But the devil never could prevail. And even though the devil moved Cain to kill Abel, God raised up another seed. God faithful throughout history demonstrating that this battle is not a battle that is uncertain. From the beginning, promising that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The devil will not prevail. But now the devil comes with great wrath upon the church, knowing that his days are numbered. And as Satan brings persecution and as he brings seduction and tries to lead the church and the saints into ways of sin, as he tempts them, he does so powerfully. He works inside the church through false teaching, through pride, through suspicion of one another. He tries to stir up unrest within the church through covetousness, through materialism. And the church is weak. The church has no natural defense. The people of God are weak. They're like sheep, defenseless, weak, foolish. And we're inclined toward the ways of darkness and the ways of sin. What is the church's hope? She looks to God, and she clings to the wonder of God's faithfulness and God's preservation and protection. The protection of the church is her God and his attributes, the fact that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, that he is eternal. That's her hope, and that's her joy. And so, beloved, as we gather on the threshold of another year, we do not despair. We gather with the blessed assurance that God gives us here in his word. Jesus Christ is guarding me. He is keeping me, and he is preserving his church. 
And he raises up office bearers, strengthening them by his grace and by his spirit for the work to which he calls them. Through the preaching of the word, he strengthens his saints, exposing the powers of the devil, working in them by his spirit so that they turn away from their sin, that they repent, that they know the wonder of his grace and of his goodness, empowering them by that spirit to live new, thankful lives of obedience. The elders, the deacons, the ministers called to bring the word of God jealously to guard the spiritual well-being of the church, admonishing sinners, receiving those who are repentant, exercising the keys of the kingdom in terms of keeping out those who must be put out, preserving those who love the Lord and desire to walk in the ways of faith and demonstrating their commitment and their love to Christ as their Lord and King. God's commitment to his church is firm. It's from everlasting to everlasting. He will preserve his own, and he will see about the destruction of the enemy as they cast dirt upon his precious eye. A startling statement is made in verse 5 about the extent of that protection. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about. A wall of fire round about her. All united to God by a true and living faith are preserved. They are kept. Kept by the power of Jesus Christ as he guards them with a wall of fire around them. And what's said about the body is true about the individual member of God's elect. Jehovah God is a wall of fire around you. Though the devil wages a battle, though the reality is that my flesh is weak, though I'm inclined toward every sinful desire, Jehovah God is preserving and keeping us by that wonder. We know that persecution is going to intensify. We know that the attacks against the church are going to increase. But we're preserved and we're kept by the power of Jehovah God. And God gives us that glorious assurance which moves us to joy and to rejoicing. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. The church is weak. The church is small, despised in the midst of this world. But Jehovah is my protection. And he builds that wall of fire by which he preserves his own by his word and by his spirit. Now, the appearance of things was not good back in the day of Zechariah. At the time when this message was written, Jerusalem was in ruins and would not be rebuilt for a number of years. The temple had to be rebuilt first, and that wasn't even finished. And the walls were still a mess, broken down. Yet God promises that the city would be restored. And he gives them here a message of hope. Now, for the people of God, this earthly city, Jerusalem, was their life. This was the focus of their nation. This is where God dwelt. They had been captive in Babylon. How they had desired to go back again to the land that God had given them. And now they were returned. The place that God had chosen, the city of his covenant, the visible, tangible expression of his presence. 
God promises now that a city will be built without walls. Another striking statement here in this passage. What does that mean? It means the enemies are not going to be threatening the church. God will completely deliver his church so that she has no more need of protection from the enemy. God will so preserve and keep her that he brings her ultimately into the glory of the new Jerusalem where there will be no more need for walls, no more need for protection. Hard that was for Israel to imagine. It appeared that they were very vulnerable. But God claims that he will preserve them with this wall of fire round about. Now, we can't always see that wall of fire in our lives. We can't always see that wall of fire protecting Christ's church. Here in the time of Zechariah, again, the walls weren't even built. They couldn't see any evidence of protection. And remember how concerning that was to Nehemiah. Nehemiah made a quick trip back, and he saw the walls all in disarray. And his sorrow over that and the urgency to help them rebuild them in order that they might experience protection. But we realize that this prophecy's final fulfillment then is not in this world. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It's not even now, but it's in a world to come. And that's what Revelation 21 makes application of. Speaking of that city with walls, but whose gates are not shut at all by day. God is her protection. And there's no need even to shut the gates because there are no enemies. God has conquered and defeated all of them. Already now, we know the victory and the wonder of that promise by faith. Remember Elisha and his servant. They were surrounded by a wicked army and they were inclined to despair in that city. But then Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant. And God did. And the servant looked out the window and he saw angels all surrounding the enemy. So that the angels of God were far more in number than all of the physical enemies. We look around, beloved, and we don't see the church as very strong. Jerusalem seemed very vulnerable. And same The church, the church does not appear very secure. She is visible in this world, but she doesn't appear to be very safe in the midst of this world. The devil is raging as a roaring lion seeking to destroy. God's people are weak, inclined to sin. We battle yet against our sinful natures, and sin is present within the church. The appearance of the church throughout the ages changed from time to time. There were times when it seemed as though that church was non-existent in the world. Think of the perilous time during Ahab and the Baal prophets. Ahab and Jezebel promoting Baal worship and killing all the prophets of God that they could find so that Elijah becomes despairing. God gives him a mighty victory at Carmel, but then Jezebel's commitment is to come against him. And finally, as Jezebel is pursuing Elijah, Elijah becomes afraid. He thinks he's the only one left who's faithful to God. And then remember, God has to come to Elijah and say, Elijah, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed 
the knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah, you don't see what I see. We don't see what God sees. And we must listen to the word of God and we must walk by faith. We are fools if we depend upon our eyes and what we can see. Throughout history, God's purpose and God's plan has always been realized with regard to his church. There are times when that church seemed strong and faithful. Other times, weak and vulnerable. But God was at work. And God was present there as a wall of fire, preserving his own, keeping his saints, and preserving his church. It seems as though Satan is wiping out the church. It seems as though he's having the upper hand. But God's plan and God's purpose always prevailing. As God's decree of election is sure. And God will see to it that by the power of his word and his spirit, his church is preserved and every last one gathered. I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. Verse 5. Now, two things are striking about a lack of walls. First of all, the growth and the spread of the church throughout all of the world. And that's on the foreground. The church cannot be contained. That's the beautiful idea here. You can't limit it. The church is found throughout the world, and so it can't have physical walls. But secondly, the protection of God for his church is spiritual. And we're reminded here of God's spiritual care. For us. Think of the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, which led and protected the people as they wandered in the wilderness. God was there and God was present. And he used that pillar of fire both to protect his people as well as to destroy the enemies. Fire depicts purification, but also destruction. And both were present. God was purifying and preserving his church while he was also bringing about the destruction of the wicked. The church is surrounded by the fire of God's glory. But even more than that, that glory of God is in her. And that's the beautiful point here. The Lord will be a wall of fire around about her and will be the glory in the midst of her. Now there we think of Moses as Moses was in the wilderness and witnessed a burning bush. This bush was on fire, and yet it was not getting burned up. What he witnessed there is the experience of Christ's church throughout the ages. God is in the midst of her as a consuming fire, and yet she's not destroyed. That's her protection. Jehovah God keeping her. Jehovah preserving her by the power of his spirit. And the glory and the strength of the church is the presence of her God within her. The previous vision in chapter 118 emphasized the word and the spirit. In chapter 1, verse 18 and following, references made to the enemies of God's church as four horns. Then lifted I up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel, what that talked with me, what be these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So these four horns were the enemy. And then we have verse 20, and the Lord showed me four carpenters. And then said I, what come these to do? And he spake, saying, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. 
But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So we ask ourselves, how do the carpenters scatter the enemy? This is how. God built his church. God raised up carpenters who would rebuild the temple, his church, so that his word and his spirit could go forth as the power unto the destruction of the wicked and the building up of his elect to the point that there was no need for walls. The word and the spirit are the protection and the power of the church unto salvation. So that, beloved, regardless of what we see, we believe Jehovah God is dwelling within his church. And he is building his church and preserving his church. And he's doing so by dwelling in her. Now we know that we can't take this passage as a reference to a specific church or a specific denomination even without qualification. We may not insert here a reference to the congregation here at Dune or to the Protestant Reformed churches so that God has a wall of fire around us so that we will never fail. That would be a wrong interpretation of the passage. God's promise is not to a specific congregation or denomination, but it's to his faithfulness toward his people, toward his church. God will preserve his church. His saints will not fail. Congregations are going to fall. Denominations are going to fail. Individuals will lose their first love. But Jehovah God will preserve to himself a witness on earth. And he will preserve to himself a church that is faithful to him. And by his spirit, God works then faith so that his children press forth by thankfulness, upholding the truth, promoting the truth, joining ourselves to churches here on earth that hold fast that word of truth, where Jesus Christ is present and where his word is faithfully proclaimed and where his spirit is at work, we believe. We seek Christ, and we seek the glory and honor of God in Jesus Christ. And we look to God to preserve us, to preserve us in humility, to preserve us in faithfulness. Now, we look around, and we don't see sometimes the numbers that we would desire. We don't see the blessings that we would desire. God doesn't give us our own pastor. God doesn't give us individuals in high prominent positions of authority within the government who then would be able to keep us, perhaps, from the temptations and from the persecutions that may come. We might desire individuals that had more money that would be able to greater supply the church so that she could be more ambitious with regard to the works that she's able to accomplish. As office bearers, we may wish that we had more gifts for the office so that we could do greater things by God's grace. But no, our strength is in Jehovah our God, who dwells in us by his spirit, who on Pentecost sent forth that spirit in order that it might dwell within the hearts of his children and it might be the strength of his church. His wall is around us and he will destroy his enemies and he will grow his church in the midst of the world. And so we're not fooled by appearances. By faith we press on believing the security and the safety that is ours in Jehovah our God. He will be that wall of fire, and he will be in the midst of us. 
The fruit of this, beloved, is joy and rejoicing. And that's the assignment set forth here in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. The church presses on with joy and with song. God is in our midst. This is the wonder that causes her to stand in awe. This is the joy that presses her onward, giving glory and giving honor to her God. God's people are called the daughter of Zion, the bride of Jesus Christ. And as the bride of Christ, she lives in unmistakable fellowship with her God, with her bridegroom, knowing and enjoying fellowship and communion with God himself. The church goes forth on the basis of God's word and God's promises as a church that's militant and a church that's victorious. Now, typically, when we talk about the victorious church, we talk about those that are already in heaven and those already that have gone before us. But already now, the church is triumphant and glorious already on earth because of that wall of fire round about her and Jehovah God in the midst of of her. God blasts his trumpet to alert us to be ready. He strengthens us by his spirit to do battle against the powers of sin and darkness. He urges us to faithfulness as office bearers, to preach the truth, to bring the word as elders, as deacons, to bring comforting words of scripture. And he teaches us, your strength is not in you. Your strength is in me and in the power of my word and the ability of my spirit to apply that word to the hearts and to the lives of God's children. As a church, militant, we do battle in the consciousness of the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so what's the fruit then? We go forward with joy. We press on with singing and with rejoicing. We begin a new year trusting and believing God is in the midst of us. We shall not be moved. Now, what an encouragement this had to be for Zechariah and for Israel. Out of the millions that had been taken into captivity into Babylon, only about 50,000 returned. They were small. And then so many of them from the outset not faithful. So that among those 50,000, quickly individuals began falling away and giving in to the pressures and the temptations of the world about them. They were despised. And then the enemy, Samballot, Tobiah, and others rose up. They were able to intermarry and get their sons and their daughters to marry Israelite children so that the devil so quickly had his way into the church in order to bring about her destruction. Their future seemed bleak. The devil was working hard to destroy their witness. But Zechariah comes with this beautiful promise. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Jehovah God, the Lord of hosts, he is a wall of fire around you. His spirit will be within you and he will preserve and he will keep you as his own. And beloved, we press on. We press on in the blessed assurance that the battle is the Lord's and therefore we cannot be moved. But secondly, be silent, O flesh, before the Lord. Verse 13. What's the reference there? Be silent. Prayer. Pray for the 
peace of Jerusalem. As God reveals himself in all of his glory, we're moved to fall on our knees in silence. And we pray. We cry out to him. We acknowledge that he alone is able to keep and to preserve his church. He alone is the one able to raise up for us a pastor. He will continue to give unto us the faithful preaching of his word. He is present by his spirit in our midst. He's the one working the wonder of regeneration in the hearts of our children, giving them to know him, to love him, and to embrace him. As God reveals himself in all of his glory, we bow in silence and in prayer. God is not sitting by idly while his saints are being afflicted. God is present. And the enemies are casting dust into his eyes. They're kicking dirt at him because they're afflicting his church. He will preserve his church and he will execute vengeance upon his enemies. And so we watch and pray. We watch for the influence and the power of the devil in our lives. We watch for doctrinal errors. We watch for those walking openly in the ways of sin. We sharpen the sword of the word of God so that that word is proclaimed faithfully Sunday after Sunday. We grow in the truth. We love it. We seek faithfully to live out of it. We are committed not to pursue our will, our way, but to submit ourselves to the word of God in every area of our lives as we seek his glory in all things. And we prepare to suffer. We prepare to be rejected by the world about us. We prepare for persecution that's going to intensify. But Jehovah, he is faithful. As we look at ourselves and we look at our church and we look at our lives, we can become discouraged. How little it seems the attendance at Bible study is week after week. How little reading it seems God's people are doing in terms of keeping themselves astute with regard to the threat and with regard to spiritual understanding. How much time are we spending educating and training our children as those who are the future of the church of Jesus Christ? The devil would so quickly lure us to sleep with the materialism, the entertainment of the world. And that starts working into our homes. And we realize with shame, we don't spend the time like we could in devotions. We're not taking time with our children to instruct and to teach them as we ought. And what will happen to the next generation? If we're not leading by example in our own study, will they see it important to study the scriptures? If we're not spending time reading and teaching, will they? If we're not making the Lord's Day a priority, what are they going to do? If we're living selfishly and pursuing our own will, what's going to encourage them to seek the Lord's ways and the Lord's will? Beloved, we're brought to our knees again. And we cry out for mercy, moved to sorrow and repentance. And we lay hold upon God's glorious word and his promise. I am with you. I gave you my own son, whom I sent as payment for your sins. And I give you my spirit, which lives and dwells within you. And I join you by a true and living faith to myself, so that you will not perish, but you will be preserved to all eternity. We lay hold on God's word and God's promise. 
And beloved, with renewed zeal, we press on in the glorious work that God has given. Willing to serve in office, willing to be watchmen on the walls of Zion, knowing this is God's church. And Jehovah God will keep and he will preserve his own. Eager to hear the word preached so that we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Regardless of what we hear from the media, what we hear around us, what we witness with our eyes, we cling to God's glorious promise that he is preserving, he is keeping his church as the apple of his eye. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what glorious promises thou hast given unto us who are weak and sinful. And Lord, we confess our sins. We cry out unto thee for mercy. And we thank thee for the wonder by which thou art dwelling in the midst of us by thy spirit, living in our hearts, working in us to see our sin, to confess it, working in us that purifying wonder of sanctification and giving unto us to believe truly we are thy beloved, the apple of thy eye, and we shall not be moved. Amen.